Buongiorno, benvenuto. This is City Breaks Florence episode 10, which I'm calling the Piazza della Signoria episode, because I'm going to spend it talking about the square, the one with the Signoria in it, talking a little bit about the Signoria, what it is, although we're coming back to that in more detail in the next episode. I'm going to mention some of the main momentous moments of history which have taken place in this very square. I'm going to end by talking about one particular character who's particularly linked with it, and that's the mad monk Savonarola, who had in this square possibly the most famous bonfire in history, and who eventually ended up being burnt himself also in this square. Created in 1307, the Piazza della Signoria really is the political and emotional heart of Florence, because so many important things have happened there. But before we think about those, I wanted just to point out some of the artwork. When you arrive in the square, I imagine the first thing you'll notice is the big building, the Signoria. But probably very soon after that, the next thing that will strike you will be the massive statue, which is a statue of Cosimo I. So that's not Cosimo de' Medici that we've talked a lot about in recent episodes. This is a later Cosimo, the one who was the first Grand Duke Cosimo, who's seen here on his horse in a statue commissioned by his son, in fact, Ferdinando. And if you think it looks familiar, that might be because you're picturing the very famous statue of Marcus Aurelius, which is in Rome, of him sitting on his horse. And in fact, yes, it is modelled on that, really. It's a bit of a copy. So it's interesting to speculate what the message of that is. Is it saying that Florence is as important as Rome and that Cosimo I was as important as Marcus Aurelius? Or was his son perhaps having a little bit of a medieval Mickey take and finding some amusement in having a statue of Dad based on such a very famous statue? I leave you to ponder that. Another thing you're quite likely to notice pretty much straight away is the Neptune Fountain, That dates from 1565 and it was supposed to pay tribute to Duke Cosimo's strength as a naval commander. A sculptor called Bartolomeo Amanati was commissioned to make the statue. I'm quite amused to notice that the rough guide describe it as, quote, a lumpen lout of a figure. And they're in quite good company because it turns out Michelangelo didn't like it all that much either. And he has quite a famous saying that he apparently uttered when he saw it, which reads as follows. And you need to remember that Amanato is the name of the sculpture. So, on spying the statue, what did Michelangelo say? He said, Amanato, Amanato, che bel marmo hai rovinato. What a marvellous piece of marble you have ruined. Quite nice that the rovinato, extra delicious because of the rhyming of rovinato and the sculptor's name, Amanato. But uh, even if you allow yourself a wry smile when you look at it, remembering this, you could also remember that in fact it was a romantic gesture because the fountain was put in place to mark the wedding of Francesco de' Medici to his new bride, Johanna of Austria. That was in 1565. There are two other very well-known statues in the square, although in fact they're both copies. So that would be the statue of Judith and Holofernes, much talked about in previous episodes. The real version of that is actually inside the Signoria building. And there's also a copy of Michelangelo's David statue here, the real one of that being housed currently in the Accademia Gallery. The copies are there because they're very Florentine, because tourists like to see them, because it's good for them to be seen and kept in everybody's mind. But they're not there in real version, I think really because it would be too dangerous to leave them there. There's the weather to think about, there's the passing hooligan of a Saturday night to think about, and generally it's been decided it's safer to keep them tucked away in buildings. 
And there's one last thing in, in the square itself outside that I wanted to refer to. And that's a profile believed to have been carved by Michelangelo. It's actually on a facade on a corner just by the road that leads down to the Uffizi Gallery. It's a profile of a man carved into the stone there, which is said to be something that was created by Michelangelo, and he did it for a bet. He was challenged to do a carving of a man with his back turned to the wall, so he wasn't actually looking at what he was doing. And people thought, well, he's a great artist, surely he'll be able to do quite a good representation. And there's also another amusing little anecdote to do with who the carving was actually supposed to be of. And that was of a citizen of Florence, I don't think we know his name, who had got himself into debt, and in fact he owed some of the money to Michelangelo himself. And Michelangelo is supposed to have come by when this man was in the pillory and inquired what he was doing there and how long he would be there. When he found out that it was only going to be for not very long, he apparently said, quote, What? For such a short time? It is necessary that the Florentines remember him for much longer. So he set about carving his face into the wall so that everybody would remember what he looked like and know that this was a man to whom you really shouldn't lend any money because he couldn't be trusted to pay it back. I'm going to make just a brief mention of the building, the Signoria, because that's going to be the focus of the next episode. So suffice to say here that it was the building from which Florence was ruled. It's where the ruling council sat when the city was a republic. Florence became a republic in 1115 and officially only really stopped being a republic in 1532 when the Pope established one of the Medici, Alessandro de' Medici, as the first Duke of the Florentine Republic. Other cities like Naples were ruled by a king, but Florence had a signoria, a ruling council of people elected to serve on it. Not possibly quite as democratic as it sounds, because there was quite a lot of abuse of people getting people they wanted onto the Signoria, stopping rivals getting onto it. There were lots of plots and problems, much of which we'll come back to in the next episode. So that completes an introduction to what you can see when you stand in the square, all the things of major interest that you can see. And I wanted now to just do a little rundown of some of the three or four key dates of very momentous things that happened actually in this square going to start with 1433. There had been unrest for some time about the idea that Cosimo de' Medici was becoming too influential, too powerful, and he was summoned to the Signoria to explain himself, and because, as it was said at the time, quote, some important decisions have to be made. To his credit, he went along, he must have known it was risky. In fact, on the first occasion, they just talked to him and sent him away again, but he was recalled three days later and hustled up to the top of the tower and shut up in a prison cell. You can actually look at it on your way up if you decide to climb the tower. He was charged with, quote, attempting to raise himself above the rank of an ordinary citizen by the Albizzi family, who, of course, were his major rivals and probably rather keen on raising themselves to the rank of above an ordinary citizen. But it was a serious charge and one that carried the death penalty. They left him in the prison for a few days while they thought about what to do with him. And in fact, in Machiavelli's writings, we do have a description of Cosimo when he was in his cell. And he tells of an incident which does give a bit of a flavour of what life was like in the 15th century. Machiavelli describes how Cosimo had a jailer in with him, one Federigo, who noticed that Cosimo wasn't eating very much. He'd been there four days and he'd only eaten very small quantities of bread. And he said to Cosimo, apparently, quote, You are afraid of being poisoned and you are hastening your end with hunger. You wrong me if you think I would be party to such an atrocious act. 
He assured Cosimo that he would be safe to eat. Cosimo still didn't take him up on it. And then the jailer said the following. That you may do so with greater assurance, I will partake of your meals with you. And Machiavelli relates how Cosimo was very relieved and how he thanked Ferreduigo and became quite tearful and said that if he ever got the chance to repay him, he would. The immediate end to that story was that Cosimo was sentenced to five years of exile and forced to ride out of Florence and over the hills on uh, the 5th of October 1433. But in fact, six months later, they decided they would have him back after all because things weren't going all that well. There'd been an uprising and the call went out for Cosimo to come back. In fact, it was all quite ironic because Cosimo had always been at pains to stress that he was a citizen of the Republic and didn't think of himself better than anybody else. He was always keen to stress that he was just one of the Signoria and didn't think he was a ruler. And one of the arguments he used to use was the fact that he was the city's highest taxpayer, which is true. I think documents would show that that is the case. But there is also a bit of a suspicion that although he did pay more tax than everybody else, he didn't actually declare his income in full, so he was sort of cheating the city. And if true, what that proves really is just how much money he was making from his banking. Forty years later, the square was the centre of another very major event, and that was the punishing of the people who'd taken part in the Pazzi conspiracy, the men who'd murdered Giuliano de' Medici and tried to murder Lorenzo, his brother, were chased through the streets, caught, brought here and hanged from the top of the tower. Often when there was a major event in the city, the scenery of bells would be rung and that, that was a sign to summon the citizens to the square so that decisions could be taken. So, for example, in 1528, this was done when the French invaded Florence and that was the occasion on which it was decided to exile Piero de' Medici. He was charged with being to blame in some way, and he fled because they put a price of 2,000 florins on his head, so if anybody captured him, they would receive this reward. So those examples show, make it clear that the square is the centre of the big events that happened in the city. And in fact, there are two main events, which I haven't mentioned yet, which took place here, and which I'm going to go on and talk about now. And they're linked, in fact, and they're linked to one person. They're the events that happened concerning the mad monk, one Girolamo Savonarola, who's come up a few times in episodes to date, but whom we haven't really explained in total detail. So the first event was the bonfire of the vanities. So I'm hoping to explain to you what the van vanities were and why they were burnt. And the second event, which is linked, was the execution of Savonarola himself by burning here in the square. So who actually was this man? Girolamo Savonarola, he was born in 1452. His father was a physician in Ferrara. And he himself was a very pious young man, to the extent that he ran away to join a Dominican monastery. He was only 23, but he wrote his father a letter claiming that he was, quote, unable to endure the evil conduct of the heedless people of Italy. I don't know how many 23-year-olds you've come across who speak like that. So he came to Florence, he joined the monastery in San Marco, he began delivering sermons and it really wasn't long at all before he'd become very, very popular. People used to come in ever greater numbers to hear him preach. It was very hard-hitting stuff. He objected to many, many things. He was always complaining that people were decadent. He described, for example, often the paintings that he saw he didn't like and he claimed that they made the Virgin Mary look, quote, like a whore. And he was very clear that the time for repentance 
was running out and that if they really didn't do as he suggested, there would be plagues and invasions and destruction and generally things wouldn't go well at all. He started persuading people to give up all sorts of things, everything from paintings to books to makeup to nice clothes and have them all burnt. That's the bonfire of the vanities. I'll come back with a little bit more detail about that in a minute. He collected a gang of supporters around him and the whole thing just got more and more extreme until at one point some of the people of Florence began to question whether they were wise to follow him and they broke into the monastery of San Marco and got hold of him and rushed him to the square and burned him to death as a heretic. So that's the short version but it's such an interesting story I wanted to look at one or two quotations. In Sarah Ginant's novel The Birth of Venus chapter 11 recounts one of Savonarola's sermons. It describes how a huge crowd gathered to hear him and that as he arrived, they fell deathly silent. Here's a description of what he actually had to say. Quote, he stood for a moment in silence, his hands clutching the edge of the stone, his eyes raking the great crowd around him. It is written that the prior should welcome his flock, but today I do not welcome you. The voice that came out began as a hiss, growing louder with each succeeding word, until it filled the cathedral and rose up into the heaven of the dome. For today you crowd into God's house only because fear and despair lick at your feet like the flames of hell and because you long for redemption. Then he would move on to what he thought they should do about it and suggest that they cast their silver and gold into the streets. And then Sarah Ginant describes him taking a little mirror out from one of his robes and speaking like this, quote, See this, Florence? I hold up a mirror to your soul. And what does it show? Decay and rot. This which was once a godly city now pours more filth down its streets than the Arno on a flooding tide. And there's a good description in Christopher Hibbert's book, Florence, the Biography of a City, in which he describes the blessed bands, as they were called, of children who joined Savonarola's gang and marched through the streets, persuading people to give up things and have them burnt. He describes how they had their hair cut short, and they went through the streets holding crosses and olive branches, and singing hymns, and being let into people's houses to search out the sort of objects of vanity that really they had to give up. And he explains how they were encouraged to report people, even their own parents and family, to the authorities if they thought they saw any instances of scandalous vice. And Christopher Hibbert quotes Luca Landucci, who was a contemporary apothecary and who wrote about things as they were, as he saw them at the time. And from his book, he quotes a marvellous list of the sort of things the children used to collect from people's houses. And it reads like this. Piles of scent bottles, pomade pots, wigs, jars of rouge, looking glasses, fans and necklaces, profane books, lewd drawings, stories by Boccaccio and Luigi Pulci. Portraits of beautiful women, carnival masks, chess boards, packs of cards, dice boxes, manuals of magic. And right on top, the effigy of a Venetian merchant who had apparently offered 20,000 scudi to buy some of the paintings that were going to be destroyed. He obviously looked for them and thought, no, I really can't let that happen. So he tried to buy them. But that just bought himself a place amongst the wicked. So all these things were collected together in the Piazza della Signoria in a huge pile, heaped up and then set fire to. And that was the bonfire of the vanities. It's claimed that as the flames took hold, there were choirs singing, there were church bells ringing all over the city 
and it was a real moment of triumph for Savonarola and the people who'd helped him. It's actually thought that paintings by people who today are some of Florence's very best-known artists, like Botticelli and Bartolomeo, were actually part of the Bonfires of Vanities. They had been persuaded to hand over some of their works. And then Christopher Hibbert goes on to quote another pair of contemporaries, one of whom obviously agreed with Savonarola and what he was trying to do, and one didn't. So Francesco Gucciadini, who was a law student, wrote, quote, There was never such goodness and religion in Florence as in his day. But another writer, he was a silk merchant called Marco Parenti, pointed out that opinion was divided, and he wrote, quote, It divided fathers and children, husbands and wives, brothers and sisters. Young men between the ages of 18 and 30 differed greatly about Savonarola. And although at the moment of the Bonfire of the Vanities that seemed to be the very height of Savonarola's influence, I think it must surely also have been the moment when more and more people began to question and think, what are we doing and why are we doing everything this man says? And so unease grew and gradually a mob of people got together who really thought they needed to do something about this. And on a particular day, in fact it was Palm Sunday, they went along to the Duomo, to the cathedral, to hear Savonarola preach and they got very furious and ended up by chasing him out. He took refuge in the monastery at San Marco and the crowd grew bigger and eventually went over there to find him and sort him out. And there are descriptions from the time of people trying to get into the convent, trying to scale ladders and priests at the top, desperately knocking them back down again. All very irreligious. But finally, they managed to burn down the wooden doors and get inside. So they went straight to find Savonarola. He was in his cell and they dragged him out and dragged him back to the Signoria, took him upstairs to the same prison where Cosimo had been imprisoned and locked him in. He was taken then to the Bargello, which was a prison and a notorious place where people were tortured, and he was subjected to something known as the strappado. Paul Strathan explains how it works in his book The Medici, and he writes the following, quote, The victim's wrists were bound behind his back with straps and tied to a rope, which was passed over a pulley. He was then hauled above the ground, his entire weight supported by his wrists yanked up behind his back. Then the rope was released so that the victim plunged almost to the floor. The jolt of pain was agonising, with the possibility of the victim's arms being wrenched out of their sockets. And, as you can imagine, it wasn't very long before Savonarola couldn't take any more and said, yes, he agreed he was a heretic. Although, in fact, it is written that um, when they let him out of the strappado, he then retracted his confession, and all of this was replayed several times so that they did finally get a confession out of him that, yes, he'd been making things up. He didn't really speak on God's behalf. And so he was condemned to death. Because he was a priest, they had to send for authorities from Rome. Pope Alexander VI had to agree. He sent two representatives along. The whole thing was gone through again, so more torture, another trial, another sentence. And this time it was carried out. So on the 23rd of May, 1498, Savonarola and two of his priests were brought along to the Piazza della Signoria, taken in fact to the very place where the bonfire of the vanities had taken place about a year earlier, and executed. And we have Luca Landucci again to thank for a really rather grim description of what happened, which reads like this, quote, 
When all three had been hanged, a fire was made upon the platform on which gunpowder was put and set alight, so that the said fire burst out with a noise of rockets and cracking. In a few hours they were burnt, their legs and arms gradually dropping off. Part of their bodies remaining hanging to the chains, a quantity of stones were thrown to make them fall, as there was a fear of the people getting hold of them. It goes on to describe how the bones were burnt until only ashes remained, and then the ashes were loaded onto carts and driven down to the river, the Arno, by the Ponte Vecchio, and they were flung into the river. The authorities were very keen that there should be no remains at all, because they feared that somehow Savonarola's supporters would, if they knew where he was buried or where any of his remains were, they would make that a place of pilgrimage and there would just be more trouble. So it was important to just remove every trace of him. That much I think we can know is true. There are enough written accounts from the time which all say pretty much the same thing. Um, but in a book called Strolling Through Florence, I did read an extra little gory detail, if you like such things, which goes as follows. Legend has it that while the three condemned men, chained and dressed in plain tunics, walked barefoot, heads down, along the section that joined up to Palazzo Vecchio, several young rascals, who had hidden underneath the catwalk, poked sticks up between the planks and prodded their feet, making them jump with pain. It might or might not be true, but I think it does capture the idea that although a lot of people in Florence fell for Savonarola and his teaching at the time, in retrospect, once he'd been done away with, most people looked back and thought, how had the people been taken in? How were they so duped? How could one monk persuade people to give up really all their worldly goods and lead a life of poverty? While the authorities did their absolute best to remove any trace of Savonarola, there are one or two things connected to him that you can see in Florence today. And to do that, you need to go to the San Marco Monastery. There'll be an episode on that um, in a few episodes' time, where we concentrate mainly on the artwork that's there, which is absolutely fantastic. So perhaps here is the place to mention the things connected to Savonarola, which you can see there. So for a start, it's known which his cell was. You can go and visit that. Hugely ironically, although all the cells are pretty similar and most monks, or all monks who lived there had one, Savonarola, of all people, had two cells. It was deemed necessary for him to have one to sleep in and another one as a study or to work at. Don't know about you, but I find it quite amusing that the one man who persuaded everybody how decadent they were and how they should give up all their worldly goods was also the one person in the entire monastery who had a two-room suite. And there are a couple of things to look at. There's a glass cabinet in his bedroom, which has a hair shirt in it, which is said to be the hair shirt that he actually used to wear. Apparently he wore it all the time. Refused to wear anything comfortable and always wore this, but whether that really is the actual one, I'm not sure. Certainly I've seen in some guidebooks people do question that, but it gives you the idea anyway that he made a great show of being uncomfortable and being seen to give up everything. There are two paintings in the monastery that you might find interesting in connection with this story. One of them is by Fra Bartolomeo, an actual portrait of Savonarola, done, it's thought, in about 1498. So either shortly before or just after his death. It's a very solemn-looking man with a big hooked nose, with his head covered in a monk's cowl. And the other painting is by an unknown artist, also believed to date from very close to the time of the execution. It is, in fact, a picture of the execution, entitled Execution of Girolamo Savonarola in the Piazza della Signoria. 
It is recognisably the Piazza della Signoria. You've got the actual building in one corner, the vast square, the plank built from the Signoria to the middle of the square along which they made Suronero walk, and the gallows and the funeral pyre. And rather disturbingly, there are a lot of people in the square who seem really to just be going about their daily business. There are groups standing around and chatting. There's a man riding across on his horse. One or two people are looking at what's happening, but really most of them are just going about that morning's work as if it's quite normal to be passing through the square and seeing somebody being executed and burnt to death. And then one final thing in the square itself, there is actually a bronze plaque set into the pavement on the exact spot where he was executed. The inscription's all in Italian, but you'll know it when you see it because it has got his name on it and it's also got the date, albeit in Roman numerals. OK, so there we have it a roundup of the doings that have gone on in the Piazza della Signoria over the centuries. It might perhaps only be Florence's second best-known square, but I think it's still true to say that for many people, if they see a picture of the square with that Signoria or Palazzo Vecchio building in the background, they do know immediately which Italian city we're in. And I hope that next time you're wandering across the Piazza della Signoria, if you're lucky enough to have such a chance, you'll feel a little better informed about what you're looking at and about some of the things that have happened on the stones on which you are now standing. So that's that for this episode. Just remains for me to tell you that in the next episode, we're going to stay in the Piazza della Signoria. In fact, go inside the Palazzo Vecchio, the building in which the Signoria operated and find out some bits and pieces about how Florence was governed when it was a republic what there is to see in there today and what you can learn from some of the things which are on display in there about some of the people who have been representatives of the city over the centuries. In the episode after that, we'll be looking at Machiavelli, whose office, no less, is in that very building. So that's it for today. It just remains for me to thank you very much for your listening. Grazie. And to say that I hope very much that you'll be able to join me again next week for more info on the lovely city of Florence. For the moment, though, arrivederci. <laughs>